this is towards the end of their life. And if we're not doing everything, and I mean absolutely everything possible, to mean that they can see the people that are important to them in those last months, weeks, days of their lives, then I think we're, you know, failing them from a humanitarian point of view. Hi, I'm Toby Ellie Osman, founder of Smooth Digital, and this is Tea with Toby, the podcast that shines a light on the care sector and helps businesses, staff, and care workers provide the very best care. The past year has been the most challenging in the history of the care sector. The UK care industry has experienced over 20,000 COVID-related deaths. Dozens of staff have died. Last June alone, nearly all of the COVID-19-related deaths were in care homes. So we decided for season four, we want to shine a spotlight on 2020. We wanted to look at the timeline of events, analyze why 2020 was so difficult, highlight the incredible people who saved care and understand what needs to be done for the care industry going forward. In the upcoming season, we will hear from carers, academics, CEOs, industry leaders and analysts. We will get a first-hand account of life on the front line. We'll review the effectiveness of the government's response and we'll discuss how the care industry has changed by the pandemic, what we can do to protect the sector for 2021 and most importantly, we will hear how the industry stood together in times of illness and social distancing with solidarity and compassion. Please join me in this very special season of Tea with Toby. On this week's Tea with Toby, I'm pleased to be joined by the Executive Director of the National Care Forum, Vic Rayner. The NCF is a membership organization for not-for-profit providers in the health and social care sector. In this episode, Vic tells me about the first time she heard the words COVID-19. We discussed how important technology was in aiding the pandemic response, and we discussed what we need to learn from the past year. But first, I was curious to learn what was on the National Care Forum's agenda in December of 2019. Vic, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Toby. Great to be here. Awesome. So we're going to wind the clocks back to around November, December of 2019. Okay. Um, I remember around that time, I was speaking at the national uh, at the Essex Care Association event, mm-hmm. and actually, you spoke at that same oh, event as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a couple of speakers later, and you gave an awesome presentation. But where was the care sector back then? Well, so we were a relatively new prime minister. Uh, we didn't, we perhaps knew it then, but we, or, or perhaps it just came up shortly afterwards, heading for a general election. Um, social care reform was back on the discussion table. It had been the very first thing, you know, one of the first things Boris Johnson had said on the steps of Downing Street, you know, we're going to fix social care. So a bit of optimism around that. A lot of concern about Brexit, you know, at that point as well, we were heading pretty full tilt towards a no-deal Brexit. Um, So concerns about what might be the implications of that. I think uh, lots of ongoing challenges around workforce, um, around uh, 
uh, you know, whether the way in which the sector was being delivered through the models of care that we have out there was appropriate for the future ahead. And I think for me, probably, you know, some optimism around where the digital agenda would take us. So I think those are the things that were occupying us then uh, with little knowledge of what was around the corner. And I think, you know, generally a, a sector that was definitely feeling it wanted reform and definitely feeling that it was still sitting in the shadows of um, the political and public focus on the National Health Service. And when was the first time you heard um, of COVID-19? What was going on around you at the time? Well, I think, I mean, I like everybody heard sort of the news kind of focus of it. The first time I can remember raising it directly with the Department of Health was late January. So I think it was January the 26th. Uh, going directly to the department to say what what's happening, you know, what's the advice we should be giving providers uh, in relation to this, you know, what we were seeing, at, thinking of it as at that point uh, 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 something that was happening in another part of the world, but that might at some point have an impact on on care services. So. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, I can remember having that conversation with a member who raised it with me and said, what should we be doing about this and and, and sending through that inquiry then, but not really appreciating, uh, you know, obviously not appreciating what the impact would be, but also not really, um, you know, being recognising that what came back, which was a sort of pretty generic thing around what everybody should do in the context of COVID was going to be the start of a, an endless uh, pathway around kind of guidance and, and policy and, and so forth over the last 11 months. And between that period of January and say March, just before the lockdowns, what was the sort of government advice during that period? Well, so first of all, we had some advice which was just really primarily aimed at healthcare workers. The first time we had anything that specifically looked at social care was towards the end of February. I think it's February the 28th or something like that. That guidance came out. Um, I mean, I think in between that time, I, I was involved in quite a lot of discussions with government officials and with members and, and others to start to kind of think about what the implications would be. But I mean, what was already apparent probably then was that in these discussions where we were what was coming forward didn't really reflect the reality of how care organisations run, how people receive care at home, uh, the kind, you know, the the ability of people, uh, both within care homes and and at home, to do things like self isolate, for example. So a lot of the solutions that were coming forward were probably not going to be care sector appropriate. So a lot of our work was about how do you, you know, how do you translate that into something that's actually going to be helpful for people to do something with. Mm. And what, what what point did you actually realise that this was a really situous, uh, serious situation? So I think uh, it's interesting you talk about kind of giving giving talks and presentations. So I, I think the last presentations that I did were right at the end of February. Mm. And that, you know, that's a big part of my job going out and, and, and talking. And I can remember doing two or three presentations within the space of a day or two 
which ju- which just over those two or three days grew and grew the focus on covid on them grew and grew and it was starting to talk about you know what 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 are the implications you know how are people going to be supported what are the things that need to be in place what are the things that we need to make sure care organizations have access to which you know that time was already it was already apparent that access to PPE uh, and so forth was going to um, be a really important priority so I think it was just trying to sort of scope out what delivering care in a world where COVID was more present might look like. Mm. So if we move uh, along the timeline to say about March or when the lockdowns yeah. happened, how what how how did the lockdowns affect first of all uh, the, uh, the National Care Forum professionally, but then also your personal life as well? So um, in terms of the National Care Forum, so obviously we're you know we're a membership body, uh, so whatever affects our members affects us. Um, so we had interestingly we had we had done we were you you might remember we had a very new care minister at that point so Helen Waitley only took up that role on the 14th of February uh, part of my job is obviously to try and you know help help politicians and civil servants and others understand what's happening in care so one of the things I was trying to do was organize some visits for Helen Waitley to care homes and we got one of those scheduled for early March uh, and she was unfortunately not well, so that meeting didn't take place. And so I found myself in the office in um, Coventry, which is is our sort of head office, and um, talking. So I was, you know, expecting to be out and about, but I was unexpectedly with the team there. And we started at that point to think about how we might have to deliver what we did differently. Uh, so we, um, you know, started to think about getting things that like Zoom, which you know, somebody, could somebody look into what the kind of video conferencing options might be? You know, how are we going to work with members if it if it does transpire that meetings can't take place? How are we going to manage things like conferences, members meetings, forums, all the things that are kind of our bread and butter delivery to uh, the membership? So we started to have those conversations and we started to think about how we would connect with the membership in a very different way. From a personal level, I was just thinking your flights cancelled triggered, reminded me of what was happening for me at a personal level. So my uh, my mum is um, moved just down the road from me uh, a year, a couple of years ago after my dad had died. So you know, I'm her kind of primary carer in some ways, although she's very independent um, and lives on her own, but. Um, she had been rushed into hospital in early February, very, very unwell. And um, my brother had come over. He lives in America. He'd come over to see her. Mm. And it had all been very difficult. Uh, and so she, for quite a bit of early February, I spent a lot of time in hospital uh, and also, you know, working from hospital, and, you know, doing all that, trying to kind of manage that. And then he was due to come back again with his family in in early April and we were all due to have a family holiday together with my mum as well and so because she'd been so unwell in hospital the conversation was starting to be well would she be well enough to have this holiday Mm -hmm. 
And then we thought, well, we'll go, we'll have the holiday, you know. Anyway, lots of these discussions. And then the weeks went by and it became increasingly clear, never mind whether she's going to be well enough, they were never going to be able to come over from America for the holiday. And then, of course, that we would never be able to go either. So that kind of, you know, that, that, the dates are not very far apart, but the, the sort of momentousness of the, of, of the issue, the way it kind of, grabbed hold of everybody's lives in different ways um was was incredible honestly those um those weeks between sort of march and april prob for me felt like months so much happened in such a short period of time yeah uh yeah. for for us yeah, as- i think so i mean i think it's incredible you know it just when you think about i mean i think obviously you know i spent a lot of time talking with members being very close to members and um just the things that they had to cope with the things that staff had to cope with obviously you know we we were hearing quite early on um some of the very real you know the very sad news that lots of people were dying within homes you know this was just trying to put yourself in the position of that those frontline staff and the things that they were having to face on a day-to-day basis i mean i you know, on a personal level, you know, I've got had it have it very easy. I'm sitting in a in a in an office at home, and but I mean, I you know, I was working twelve sort of twelve hour plus days, and 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 every weekend as well, and and but they were doing all that plus having to really be everything for the people who that they were caring for, particularly those staff in in care homes. Uh, and nursing homes and particularly for those looking after older people so um it, it, just incredible incredible absolutely it will, from the from the general public's perception they only see what they see on the news um but what was what were those conversations like you remember you you mentioned you were having conversations with members what were some of the key challenges at that point challenge challenges concerns so i think people didn't know what was happening i mean i think that's part of you know that was part of it so we heard we were hearing these things weren't they that if you were covid positive you had a cough uh and a fever i think those were the only two things at the time that we were told were the symptoms and what members were telling us is that's not what we're seeing it's not people with a cough and it's not people with a fever it's people with diarrhea or it's people who are um you know getting perhaps a fever but then seeming to get better and then eight or ten days later are deteriorating really quickly um and you know nobody being able to predict that it was people who were finding that community health services people colleagues they'd relied on and had as part of their the everyday life of a care home were unable were told they were unable to come in to home so staff who'd never done insulin injections or heparin injections or whatever were being asked trained probably online or or by the district nurse to do these and then that was sort of handed over to them as a delegated responsibility it was people who were trying to get people into hospital and finding that hospitals were unable to take them in i i mean just i think that the kind of pressure and but mostly it was I think that overwhelming sense that people didn't know what this was mm. and didn't know 
you know, at that stage, didn't really know how to stop it. And of course, alongside that, you know, lots of new guidance, endless amounts of new guidance coming out. And and things like, uh, for example, you know, one of the biggest challenges was around PPE uh, and people being told, you know, lots of different things from a national perspective and from a local perspective, sometimes different instructions, and then thinking, well, how am I going to get this? This stuff that is intended to kind of be the break between the infection and the me and the infection and the people that I'm looking after, but I can't, I can't get hold of it, or I can get hold of it, but it's ten times the price it was last week. I mean, it just, it, it just, I think that. And so what I hope organisations like NCF were able to do is to make people feel they're not, they weren't on their own in that. If you're a single home operator trying to interpret all that guidance, I mean, literally hundreds of pieces of guidance, and trying to understand what's happening to your residents and not being able to get the local support that you normally would be able to through health or local authority colleagues because they too were busy firefighting, you know, it's just, just terrifying, I think. Mm so much to digest in such a short period of time what looking yeah. back at it what do you think could have been done a bit differently i mean it was known from wuhan and uh you know some of the earlier cases in the us uh which talked about the impact of the the virus on on care homes it was known that this was the most vulnerable group of people and yet the the kind the, the sort of focus on the physical aspects of how COVID manifested itself in older people wasn't there. Um, as so that people when they were saying, I've got somebody, I you know, I don't I don't know if they need testing, if they didn't have the kind of classic symptoms, they weren't they weren't testing wasn't going to be made available to them. So I think having, you know, having more clinical focus on that group of people, I think having the right data to count what was happening uh, in places other than the NHS and not using that as the only measure. And I think the whole issue about how the country's whole kind of uh, crept so slowly towards a testing regime that was robust enough to um, deal with uh, what was clearly something that was moving much quicker than any of anybody you know it was, it was the community transmission was much higher than anybody anticipated but but actually we don't we didn't know that even we could only see it in in almost fixed communities like care homes because that you know that it was affecting the most vulnerable people so and lots of people clearly in those settings didn't even get tested even at that point so some i don't know a kind of uh, yeah, lots of things that I think would have helped us to more identify earlier on just what was just what was going on. I think you know to get to a place that people could really say that I understand now what's happening to me and I know exactly what to do in order to put as many things in place to stop it. Absolutely. 
I absolutely agree with Vic that the impact COVID would have on the care sector was greatly underestimated. Later on, Vic gives her honest thoughts on the Clap for Carers initiative. We discuss how crucial family visits are for residents and Vic passionately identifies the wonderful things a career in care can offer. Before that, I wanted to get Vic's insight into how the lack of testing for discharge hospital patients led to COVID cases in homes. So I think it was probably around uh, April now, April 2020, maybe May, and there was a, a steady stream of um, discharges from the hospital that were going into care homes. And some of the challenges that some of the providers we work with were sharing was that there wasn't any sort of testing coming in place. And then there were some homes that had absolutely no COVID cases that, you know, fast forward a couple of weeks or months, and now been affected and they look back at that period of the admissions. Did, did you see any, any of those types of challenges from your members or conversations around the hospital discharge process? Yeah, I mean, I think that was even a bit earlier, to be honest, Toby. I think it was sort of late March mm. time when there was an expectation that hospital admissions would rocket up um, in a way that actually didn't quite transpire uh, then, but we are obviously seeing the effects of now, but I, I think it's the the, the difficulty um, without that testing regime was that again it was the unknown element of it. So COVID did get into lots of homes, and I think we probably can never be particularly clear how that happened because some of that might have been through people coming from hospital. Some of that might have been through staff. Some of that might have been through people coming in from the community. I mean, there were, you know, there were care homes and have never stayed still in the sense that people don't come and come and go. And um, so I think, I mean, I think it's really, I think it's very difficult to kind of pinpoint. I, I, I guess what was what that felt like was that there was one bit of the system that was being prioritised over another bit of the system. And in that context, one set of people who were being prioritised over another set of people. So whether that was or wasn't what what the seed of some of that virus spread was, the fact is that there was ways in which it could have been managed in a in a way that we would have known that wasn't the case, which would have been by testing people or which would have been by, uh, you know, prioritising the PPE requirements of care homes rather than hospitals, so that if that if it was people who had to come in who were COVID positive, that all the equipment and all the support was there for people. Uh, and, I, and I think that's, you know, that's the bit that people will look back on and say, this, this was almost back to your conversation in, in November, the way that this played out was could could be looked at through the lens of the lack of reform for social care and the and the fact that we went into this pandemic with a set of priorities that weren't changed even though it was pretty glaringly evident that they needed to be in order for the people who were most vulnerable to be protected so in terms of when the lockdowns happened, so no um, visitations into homes, etc., how do you think the lack of socialisation 
impacted the residents and the staff? Yeah, I mean, hugely, I think. Um, I mean, care home staff do an incredible job and will have been as much as they can um, the family that people couldn't see, but they're not the family. You know, we know what makes great care and great care is built on relationships and relationships with the people that you love and that are close to you, whether that's families or neighbours or friends or whoever that is. So I, I think we were... We were hearing from members, you know, there was an element, wasn't there, that everybody kind of accepted that things had to be done very differently for a period of time whilst we were all trying to um, put a stop to the virus transmission. So I think there was a there was a period of time where people sort of accepted that this is the way things needed to be. And then we were beginning to hear from members some very strong messages that people were suffering because they were unable to be near the person that they loved or they couldn't understand why they weren't able to be connected. So we did a, quite a lot of work um, with the membership to try and, and with relatives and residents groups as well to try and understand what the kind of key elements of visiting could be in the context of COVID and also to say very clearly, you know, before we start to think about opening pubs and cafe, you know, before we focus on what became a sort of polit political priority around economy, we need to get these people back connected up with those that they love. So some of what, and we worked with, with part of something called the Care Provider Alliance, and between us we then produced a sort of visiting protocol in mid-June, uh, which kind of outlined how visits could happen and how important they were. And I think prior to that as well, we'd also been um, you know, strongly working with the membership and working with um, uh, we part of something as well called Digital Social Care, which looks at uh, how digital can be a, a, a big part of the future. And uh, I sat on a, a, a range of groups that look at, looked at how technology could keep people connected. So there was a, you know, there'd been, there'd been lots of, a, lots of focus on how important this was, even when people physically couldn't be in the same space. And then obviously from June onwards, we were advocating that people could be outdoors in the same space and, um, you know, where IPC was being used, infection prevention and control was effectively being used and PPE that in, in some cases people were visiting indoors as well. So you do, you do. But it was, you know, it's really clear that people need people, don't they? That's, that's the bottom line. And in what ways did you see technology sort of aid the response of the, pan the pandemic? Loads and loads of ways, actually. So, um, I mean, obviously, the, from the visiting point of view, the opportunity for Facebook portal and, you know, various uh, bits of technology, some of those software suppliers who've got, um, you know, resident gate, relative gateways where you can see into the care planning software. So those sort of things really came into their own. And I think will have shifted the way in which care planning and, and care delivery is done it, it, in a way which might have taken years to do. So there are some things to be kind of thankful for in that context. And without clinicians being able to come into care homes, the opportunity for video conferencing uh, and for people to do sort of remote uh, sessions was really taken up by lots of different organisations. So I think, I mean, I think from a digital point of view, it's been a good, it's been a good year in a, in a terrible year in a way because I think it's shown that it can help unlock 
some of the challenges we were facing and I, I I struggle to imagine why anybody would want to row back on that. Absolutely. We we talk about as a digital agency that works exclusively with the care sector, we talk a lot about pushing the sector forward from a digital perspective and that the, the sector was behind. But I think in those months, so much um, technology enhancement was really ploughed in to the point of some of our domiciliary care providers were saying they now use WhatsApp um, groups for their carers. Um, and they do some really creative things. One, we had a carer on the show, a living carer, talking about how she helped one of her, um, one of the uh, people she was caring for set up um, a Facebook account edit do some it was i think it was her birthday and they got videos from everyone edit it together so she could you know connect with family so from a technological point of view i think it has been um you know a benefit to the sector there so moving on a little bit what's your thoughts of the clap for carers initiative well, it's quite interesting isn't it um the uh, clap for carers originally um I think did give people something. People like to do something, and and people couldn't do very much at that time um, to to show recognition. They couldn't go go anywhere. They could, you know, it was it was it certainly felt more restrictive than it did does now in a way. I think from the point of view of raising the profile of care workers and for them to be being seen alongside our colleagues in the NHS, I think it was important. I think the challenge people have got with it now is. You know, when when ten months on, why are we still clapping? We've got lots of comparators with Wales and Scotland, where, for example, they've given care workers five hundred pound bonuses. You know, there's nothing really in terms of the offer. We, you know, we we have a care system, a payment system to care workers, which isn't determined by the government, but um, in response to the Migration Advisory Committee's recommendations about additional pay, the government's response was that you know we have a national minimum wage, uh, and if that if that is the reward for care workers that it's national minimum wage, and and in this latest budget we're raising that by 2.2 percent, I, I I suspect care workers feel less than um, less than sort of valued in that in that regime so i think i think it had a really important moment um uh but now i think people will be saying why are we why are we doing this again uh, when actually we haven't done anything in between to really change the position of those individuals i would agree i, I would definitely say that the first clap for carers initiative was all over the news, it was widely covered. I think it did really raise the awareness of the care sector to the general public. And at the same time, there were people losing their jobs in retail, in tourism. And we did see as a digital agency, which run campaigns, we saw a huge influx of people coming into the care sector. And we know that there is a recruitment and retention issue do you think that the new influx of people maybe from different professions coming into the sector will remain once things do go back to not go back but once things do normalize yeah. well i guess it's imperative on us to make sure they do i i mean i think it's such a fantastic career 
And it is something that, you know, people who I talk to, and I'm sure you talk to, uh, you know, absolutely love doing because it's, it's rewarding, it's fulfilling, etc., etc. But so I think it's imperative on us to make that, make that, um, as appealing as it is to stay. But I think it also then is imperative on government to recognise if it then does things to stimulate other parts of the sector again. So I think there's there's two sides to it. One is that we, you know, really get our ducks in a row about what working in care means. So focus on having a proper, you know, even if we can't have the funded reform, have a workforce reform agenda in this year. Um, and then and and make it really clear that this is a career for life if people want it. There's lots of things you can do. It's varied, you know, all the things that we know and you know from talking to people. But then equally say we need we need a rewards structure, we need a payment structure that that values it in the same way that the rhetoric that comes out of politicians' mouths sometimes suggest is the case. You know, these are the most amazing, awesome, valuable courageous heroic will pay them as such don't don't then say 2.2 percent off you go and don't then as local authorities say it's it's really difficult we know you've got 2.2 percent to go up but we haven't got any money either so we're not giving any uplift you know these things that these, these things all have a consequence on whether we're able to keep people in the sector i mean i've, I've heard i'm sure you've heard some brilliant stories of people who've come from all sorts of different sectors and have gone, wow, this is incredible. Is this what care is all about? I just thought it was, you know, helping people get out of bed. I didn't think it was about people's lives and what you can do to support and change people's lives. Why hasn't there been change? It seems like we've been saying this for years and years and years. Yeah, well, I think you can look at some of the things, can't you? So um, it's generally a part-time workforce. It's not a very well unionised workforce. It's it's 86% women working in it. You know, it's people who very often have their own caring responsibilities. We don't have a register of workers, so we don't even have a kind of way of... I mean, that's been fascinating in COVID to sort of see the government realise that actually we don't have any way centrally of communicating with all these people who work in care. Nothing. There's no way of doing it. You have to do it through each and every individual employer so you know there's no, so there's there's lots of reasons i think why we haven't we haven't got that i think the the real tragedy you know the, not the real tragedy that you know it would be very remiss of us if we're still in this position after this when actually it's not possible to say care workers are not visible mm. so if we move ourselves down the timeline to about august uh, the Guardian reported that CQC refused to release which care homes experienced the most COVID-related deaths, and they particularly said for commercial interests. What's your thoughts on this? I think what what we certainly are saying to members is that the death the deaths in homes were an absolute tragedy, and it is. But but what those homes need to be doing is to communicating that to the people who know. You need to know. So that's the families, the relatives of those who are living within those homes and being as transparent and clear about that information as possible. 
I think that's what that's what's important and that message about transparency is central to all of these things like visiting um like outbreaks uh the situations that we're in now around levels of vaccination you know these are the things that people people want to know this because they want to understand that you're looking after their loved one as in the best possible way so i think so i think my uh, response to that is that you know our our encouragement is that providers give that information to the people who need to know it we've heard talks about the rise of living care as the media uh, as the media talk about care homes uh, some would say there's been a negative perception what do you think the impact's going to be of the care home businesses, care home providers, of the perception of the media, particularly the negative perception that they? Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? So we did, we had, we'd done a bit of public perception survey work actually to see how that was because we're very aware that you know actually we, the public. Um, so we ran something called the Here to Care campaign, which focused on what was happening within care homes during COVID and giving people uh, a kind of clear picture of, of the things that were going on, uh, focusing on the kind of care, you know, the high quality care that was continuing. Um, and the, from a public perception point of view, I mean, the, the there's differences, aren't there? There's those people who have never really heard of care before. And the first time they hear about it is that they're hearing about, you know, a pretty negative picture of care um, or, or, or very worrying sort of statistics about the impact on people in care homes. So I think there's that there's that group of people. And then there is a group of people who are actively considering either for themselves or for somebody that they have caring responsibilities for the need for care homes and I and I think you probably need to ask those two different groups of people what they think to get a tr- sort of true sense because I think the people who never really thought about care before won't think won't think it's will have a pretty negative perception of it but but equally they're probably not going to do anything with that until they do need care <laughs> it, it, it we've never we've not re- quite cracked it as something that people recognize probably will affect all of us at some stage and i think things like living care are a fantastic uh, option we've got members who who uh, offer that supported living services extra care retirement villages these are all part of the the broader portfolio and i i think you know the that's why we need that reform to come along and, and we need that reform to focus on what do people want in the future awesome so if we fast forward to now we're recording this in january of 2021 we're in another national lockdown what do you think we should be doing to ensure we protect the care sector as much as possible this time around so i think there's lots of uh, lots of things we should be doing so we're back in a situation where we've got huge amounts of pressure on hospitals so we cannot we cannot fall into that trap again and only think of a solution that supports hospitals. So if we're going to talk about discharge again uh, at scale, then we need to make sure that we've got the testing in place, that homes are not being pressured to take people 
if they're not able to, that we understand that the sort of, you know, if we've got high levels of community transmission impacting on staff in hospitals, that's also impacting on staff in care homes uh, and care settings more broadly. So we need to kind of, you know, we need to make sure we're not slipping back into prioritising one part of the system, if you want to call it that, over another. I think we need to desperately think about injecting more resource into care homes. I think we need to think about where appropriate funding them to operate at lower occupancy, if that's what will make a difference for kind of zoning purposes or or, or enabling them to keep people isolated. I think we need to um, properly uh, scale up this vaccination programme. We need to get care home residents and care staff vaccinated as quickly as possible. Uh, I know lots of efforts are going into that, but it it feels like we have named them priority one, but we haven't necessarily. Usually you try and tick off priority one before you move on to serving priority two, three and four. And, we, and we're doing a bit of everything, which, you know, I understand, but it doesn't give people you know, this is the stuff that will save people's lives, uh, the vaccination programme. We get the testing programme right. We're back in, certainly over Christmas, we were back to people waiting five to six days for PCR tests, those tests that come back from the lab. Uh, and we've we've introduced a whole raft of lateral flow testing into care homes, but we haven't resourced that properly. So you're asking people to do the thing, giving, I mean, you're kind of answering the things that we were calling for, uh, and been calling for for months and just sort of the risk is it feels a bit like they've been handed over and said here you are get on with it and it's not you know this is not this isn't how it should be in a way this is the, if we're going to be able to do this right for the wider community as a whole homes and and care homes and supported living in other places need to be properly resourced to be able to do it I mean we've got supported living should now be able to access testing. We're hearing that people and you know, you, you can register for it now, which is a step forward, tiny step forward, but you still can't get access to the test. So I think there's a bit and, and I think the bit we've got to stop doing is is standing at the podium and saying, this is what's happening. Because most of the time when those announcements are made, it's not what's happening, it's what's planned. Uh, and we've got to get visitors back in. We've got to, you know, it was great that the new guidance national lockdown didn't prevent visitors full stop. But actually, for many people, this is this is towards the end of their life. And if we're not doing everything, and I mean absolutely everything possible to mean that they can see the people that are important to them in those last months, weeks, days of their lives, then I think we're, you know, failing them from a humanity humanitarian point of view. Do you think we'll get back to the point where there was face-to-face contact in visit, visiting around care homes? What do you think? Well, we'll get back to it. Yeah, yeah, we will get back to it. But I think, but only if we try, you know, we'll get back to it an awful lot quicker if we give it the priority that I think it needs and, and we... Oh, the people who, who awesome. My my final question for you, and I'm I'm curious to know your answer. 
We've done the past, we've done the now. Let's fast forward 10 years from now. In an ideal situation, where would you like to see the care sector and what type of innovations would you like to see come to fruition? So 10 years time, I think, um, let's let's look at it as three different sort of uh, sections of society's views. So I think you you would have a, a huge group of younger people involved in in care who would be shaping that a lot of through a digital lens or whatever we call it by then um, probably something very different something that's just not even we don't even call it something it's just how we work you know it it, it so that that would be and who would have been hearing about it as as a career of choice through a kind of you know an academic program that that, that values care and and what it does I think if you then looked at the kind of broader workforce, I, I mean, I I think that the the roles that people do now will be very different in ten years' time. So I think we will have used um, tech to change a lot of the way we deliver care. So my hope is that that will feel like a lot more person-led. Uh, and that people will be able to control the level of care that they have or want or, or need, and they'll be able to do a lot more for themselves. So the sort of roles that then people are doing are, are, are ones that connect to the emotional well-being of individuals, perhaps more than the physicality of care that's currently there. And then I think in the context of the people who who are receiving care and support, that that it's something that they've thought about and planned for. And I think the way that you manage that is that you, you know, whether this is what comes out in any kind of reform agenda, but that, that there is a logical progression in your life that that says the contributions I'm making now and the things that I'm doing for myself will all make up my need for care in the future. So it's a positive choice rather than how it often gets replayed now as as a last resort, which when you then talk to people who are living within care homes, they might have felt that before, but they don't universally feel that when they're in there for many people it's a very positive choice but we don't have the language or the imagery or the uh the the societal understanding to make it feel positive before you go there ultimately we need a soap opera that's based (laughs) in care homes and and that people could you know that that something that that enables us to see that to, to, to demystify and to make it feel positive and and you know and exciting and and different and all of the things that you know I know it can be but from the outside it's either doom or gloom or or drudgery uh, and that's it's, it's none of those it's it's sometimes it's a sometimes it's a bit of all those things but what mm. job isn't uh, but but a lot of the time it's passion and excitement and fulfillment and and that's both the people working there and the people who are who are living there so um i think we just 
that's where I'm that's where awesome. I'm heading. I think the reality TV show is not a bad idea. You know, only the people in the gear homes get to really see the amount of fun and joy that's in there and the public could really do with some of that in their life. So Vic Raynard, really appreciate you coming to speak with us. Um, where can people find you or reach out to you and learn more about the work you're doing? So I run the National Care Forum. You can find us on the web um, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at Vic Rayner, uh, and you can I write lots of blogs and lots of uh, articles and, uh, and things like that. And I'm always delighted to talk with anybody who's interested in, in care. Awesome. So. Thank you very much. I completely agree with Vic's call to reshape perspectives on a career in care. I've learned there's no greater job satisfaction than the satisfaction you feel making a real difference in a person's life. And carers do that every day. Thank you so much, Vic Rayner, for joining me on the show. And thank you all at home for listening. On the next episode of Tea with Toby, I speak to the CEO of Aged Care Technologies, Professor Ian Philp. Ian is not only a professor and CEO, he's also an advisor of the World Health Organization. Ian's insight is incredible and I quizzed him about the commonly misunderstood true needs for older people. Ian highlights the moment the government lost the trust of the British people and we take a look at what needs to be done in the next 10 years to save the sector. Before we go, there's just a few quick notes. Make sure you subscribe to the Tea with Toby podcast so you automatically get notified about new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to know more about you and what you all think of the show. So be sure to send me your comments at toby at teawithtoby.com. Please check out our website, teawithtoby.com, where you can find out more about me, Toby, our sponsor, Meet My Brian, and what we do at Smooth Digital. I've started a newsletter that goes straight into your inbox. So do sign up at our website as well at teawithtoby.com. You've been listening to Tea With Toby, the podcast presented by me, Toby Eliosman, and produced by One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the audio and visual engineer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher. Additional creative support from Selena Christophers, Jade Cornish, and Miranda Lopez. This episode was recorded by Connor Foley. Thanks for listening to Tea with Toby.